All right. Let me pray. Well, Father, we, we do thank you for um, the promise you've made that uh, you will see this world uh, one for Christ. And we, uh, we, we take heart with the fact that the Lord Jesus talks about his church uh, and how it will grow, it will be established. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we, we thank you for that great assurance and confidence. And pray, please, that you would stir us to be part of that, that you might put it in our hearts to give our lives to the cause of the gospel, uh, to do what we can do with all our different giftings and opportunities, uh, to be part of uh, this great endeavour that you're about in through the world, saving the lost. We pray for tonight, please, that this uh, ministry now that we spend time in, in digging into your word might be a blessing and encouragement to us. You might use it to stir us to be like you, uh, to live like you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from the very start of church 27 years ago, so this was a church plant back 27 years ago, um, and uh, back then we made a decision to commit ourselves to preach through the Bible chapter by chapter, just to let whatever the next chapter in the Bible was uh, set the agenda for us, and we've been doing it a bunch of time. There's been a few moments, of course, when we do some topical, like next week we'll do Mother's Day, uh, so bring your mums, of course. Um, now, it's, it's a great way to engage with the Bible. It says something of the significance of what the Bible is, and I just noticed Maddie asked um, if anyone watched the coronation and I, am I right like one hand went up like how many people watched the coronation oh okay like half a dozen <laughs> do you know that we have a king do you guys yeah we're, we're all on board with that um there was a moment during the I, I didn't plan to watch the coronation but Kathy and I were just sitting there we'd run out of things to talk about and so I said well, let's have a quick look <laughs> and um and and we just kept somehow just I don't know what it did. I think we were brain dead and we, didn't, we couldn't do anything else. But anyway, we were, we were sucked into we watched it. And it was quite, quite an experience. But there was a moment during the coronation where, where Charles, King Charles was sitting there and um, they presented him with lots of stuff. But it, it's very Christian. But at one point they presented him with the Bible. The, the moderator of the Church of Scotland uh, came, came you know, in front of 2,500 people in the building and so on, came with a Bible on a leather um, um, plate... <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and brought the Bible to Charles and, and said, um, he presented the Bible to Charles and he said these words, I give, you, I give you this book, the most valuable thing the world has to offer. Wow. It, that's an extraordinary insight into the nature of the Scriptures. And so that we go through it chapter by chapter. I mean, that little piece there, I think every minister in the world is going to be using that today after having heard it last night. Um, really a very powerful moment in the whole service to see the, the, the history of Christian thought about the Scriptures to understand in, in the whole context of an empire, the most valuable thing is this book. So to go through it chapter by chapter uh, reflects the great profound character of what it is. Um, but going through it chapter by chapter is also a pain in the neck. A good pain in the neck uh, because it creates a challenge where we are forced to look at parts of the Bible which we might not otherwise look at because they don't immediately seem relevant or they seem hard. The great blessing of that is that you get the whole counsel of God and not just the hobby horse of the minister. So it's a really wonderful practice. It forces us to deal with the difficult passages and it forces us to deal with passages that don't seem to be particularly relevant to us and that's this one. Do, do, Lockie read it for us, did you... You pick up what's going on through here. Um, you know, in other parts of the Bible, there's these profound kind of um, 
magisterial statements, great profound uh, massive things of gospel truth. So chapter 8 verse 9 is a beautiful one. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that he through his poverty might make us rich, righteous. That's a, that's a verse you'd want to stick on your wall on a poster. A fantastically powerful. That was last week. This week you've got 9 verse 3. I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter might not prove hollow. What poster do you stick that on? I mean, that's not going to make it really a kurong, is it? The kind of poster thing with a kitten or something. It, um, or an ocean wave or something. It, uh, this is a passage that hasn't got those great passages and moments because it's very much bound up with a particular context and a very particular circumstance, which means it's, you're kind of left going, what's this got to say with us? Let me give you the context and, and I'll show you the problem. Um, last week we talked in chapter 8, the first part of chapter 8, about the fact that the Apostle Paul was trying to, seeking to raise some funds uh, from uh, the Gentile churches that he might distribute that fund across to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were going through a famine. And there was a big spiritual thing, remember we talked about last week, the the nature of Romans chapter 15, the spiritual blessings that have come from the Jews so that the Gentiles give back the material blessing. So it's a massively important task and uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 8 is trying to wind the Corinthians up again and say give to this because it seems like they had intended to but it had wound down, they kind of left the building and forgot all about it so Paul's kind of back at them saying get going. Now in chapter 9 verse 6... Uh, which we'll look at in two weeks' time. In chapter 9, verse 6, he kind of gets back at it and winds them up again about the importance of this great collection. But between those two sections, you've got the piece we've read. Chapter 8, verse 16 to 9, 5, where Paul just pays a lot of attention to the details of how he's going to transfer the collection from where it's found across to Jerusalem. He talks there, look at verse 16, about how Titus has got the same concern about this collection. So Titus is coming to you with much enthusiasm, verse 17. Verse 18, we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches, who he doesn't name. Uh, But if you read Acts chapter 20, verse 3 and 4, you'll get a a hint that it might be one of those men. But he's sending a brother who the churches uh, love and praise to come with Titus. And then in verse 22, we're told he's sending another brother, again unnamed, but probably from Acts 20, who has proved in many ways zealous And he's now got great... So what we're told here is, uh, I'm sending Titus, I'm going to send two other blokes with him and they'll come and help carry the collection. Uh, They'll carry the money, verse 19. Now what do you do with that? Well, if we ever raise a collection in Corinth and we need somebody to carry it, we'll find a Titus and two unknown blokes. That's the kind of application. What do you do with that, you see? Um, What relevance has it to us? Well, a great deal. A great deal. It is a very important word about human nature, about human nature among Christians and about how therefore we ought to live with this human nature. Now how does that come out? Well let me take you through it again and show you how it works. You see, look at the nature of the plans. There's this an assumption that actually operates behind all that Paul says in this little piece. Verse 18, he's sending Titus I'm uh, uh, oh, sorry, verse 18, he's sending the brother, a brother who's praised in all the churches for his service to the gospel. 22, he's sending another brother with Titus. So that, verse 20, look at verse 20, 
We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. This is massive. The the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that this activity of collecting the money, this liberal gift, and transporting it across to Jerusalem from the Gentile churches to the Jewish Christians, honours God and avoids any criticism among men that it's been done well or badly. Why is, he concerned? Why, is he, why is he sending Titus and two brothers to make sure it honours God, it's done what's right in the eyes of God and in the eyes of men? Why is he sending three men to do that? For two reasons. Because if it was just one person carrying this gift, then there was a chance that they might steal it, piece by piece. Do you know, they hit the shops and they can't find any money, they grab a bit out of the liberal gift. Someone hits them up for something and they grab a bit more money. They think to themselves, there's enough money now gone, no one's going to know, I'll take a bit. And so the Apostle Paul goes, we can't have one person do it, we need to have a couple of people to make sure there's accountabilities. But he also sends key respected leaders to together carry the amount, respected leaders amongst the churches, so that the Corinthians have confidence that what happens uh, is above board and they won't accuse Paul of doing the wrong thing, so that he makes sure there's no accusations from the Corinthians. Now, I get all of this from verse 20 and 21, where Paul is saying he he takes pains to do what is right, verse 21, not only in the eyes of the Lord but also in the eyes of man. Paul is wanting to make sure in the eyes of the Lord, even if no one's watching, everything's done right. No one has the opportunity to steal this money. It's it's cared for. But he wants to make sure what's done is right in the eyes of man, that there's no opportunity for slander or accusation or criticism about the way it's been handled. Uh, It's very clear cut. Uh, This is Paul aware of one great risk, which is that the Corinthians... Uh, are actually prone to be critical of Paul. Uh, now you can get this, I, I won't, you can chase it up later if you want to write this down. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12. You've got to let you write that down, didn't you? Um, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12. These various chapters through this book indicate how the Corinthians were quite regularly ready to slander Paul and critique him for what he's doing. And so he sets up very careful processes to make sure there's no theft, two or three go, and to make sure there's no room for accusation, the two or three who go are well known by the churches, respected by the churches, have a great reputation by the churches. Now, as you hear all of this, does this not sound very modern? You, you see, think with me further. What stands behind all of even this? a very healthy view of human nature, a very pessimistic view of human nature, including the nature of Christians. The Apostle Paul is fully aware that human beings, being who they are, even at their best, are always at risk of sinning. 
of falling into sin, of being quick to judge others, that they must have done something wrong. Paul knew that given the chance, a human with the right opportunity, the right pressure, the right circumstance will steal, even Christians. Now this, this is the thing that's massive for us. People are only one opportunity away from sin and Christians are still sinners. Radical. Let me show you how it's radical. We live at a time of great confusion, I think, in our world. Uh, you, you may... Well, let me offer some thoughts and see if these resonate for you. I think we live in a time of great confusion about what people are actually like. On one hand, there's all kinds of massive efforts that go into uh, making sure people in power have got checks and balances and accountabilities and transparency because we know those people in power, we know that they're likely to steal, they're likely to use it for their own ends and, you know, and so there's lots of critique online about people in power and what they do and how they do it and they have to be called to account. We're very aware of people and how they can abuse their power. But on the other hand... We do live with this idea that humans are basically good. Most modern thinking seems to be around the notion that inside every person is a beautiful, honest, kind, well-intentioned butterfly waiting to emerge from the grub that we can see. There's this beautiful heart at the heart of every person. You're a beautiful person. And if we can just nurture you and get rid of all the cultural problems around you and all the hatred that you're experiencing, then this beautiful butterfly would emerge and you'd turn into a wonderfully integrated, happy, healthy, kind, generous person. Now, I did wonder about whether I'm onto something with this. Um, and so I did some research. I hit Google. And uh, you can do this. I did memes about human nature and whether we're good and so on. And uh, that's my research. And I, um, 35 years of research in my two so as well. But and, and I, one, a couple of things came up. There was a sign that came up uh, all, that was in the city of Minneapolis in America. Uh, it was on a, a fence and the sign said, Attention, you are wonderful and you deserve every happiness. I thought, well, that's interesting. Is it true that you are wonderful and you deserve every happiness? True or false? We want it to be true. I think many of us tell ourselves it must be true and that sign is certainly telling us that that's true. But what's interesting there is whether it's true or not, that's what our world is saying to each of us. That you are really beautiful deep down, you are really wonderful, you deserve every happiness. If stuff goes wrong, it's, it's not something that you deserve, you deserve happiness. Now, true or false though? There was another interesting one that um, uh, threw up, which was an um, account of a, a man sitting next to a woman on an aeroplane as they were taking off and she was deeply distressed. And um, at the, this little meme talked about how uh, he, he talked her through it all, talked to her gently through the whole episode and held her hand so that she actually coped and managed and he was very kind and gentle with her all the way through the flight towards the end. And the bottom caption was, this is just people... Being people. The assumption, when people are just who they are, what emerges is the butterfly, kindness, gentleness and so on. 
I would offer this, when people are just people, what emerges is greed, selfishness, abuse, slander, violence, aggression. (laughs) Out of the heart, says the Lord Jesus, these things flow. They're not outside of us, they're inside of us. That's If people are just who they are, what you get is an incredible mix of some kindness, selfishness, greed and so on, pride. Um, You see, it, it seems that the mind around us is, the culture around us is saying people are generally wonderful and good and it's only a certain kind of person that's the problem, it's the person in power. And if we can just... If we can just constrain them, then all the rest of us beautiful people will emerge and it'll be wonderful. The division we have between good and bad is between us, good, them, bad. But the Bible won't have it. The Bible has a very different mind on these things and it fits reality. Let me... um, uh, Second World War, you remember the 1940s? Or not, you won't remember, you heard about uh, in school or uni or something. The um, Second World War... Uh, Germany, uh, there were six million, six million humans, Jews, sent to the gas chamber and slaughtered. Uh, just a horrific piece of human history. And, um, and many people after the war, when they found out this had been happening, concentration camps and, you know, uh, uh, German citizens were betraying Jews and sending them off to the gas chambers and so on. The, the big question was raised, why were, why were Germans doing this? And the kind of prevailing thought at the time was it was because they were being compelled by the Nazis, who were the evil ones in power, they were being compelled by the Nazis to do what was against their will out of fear. They didn't want to do it, but out of fear of the powers above them, they did it. It was really the other ones who were evil. But there was some research done a couple of decades ago now which kind of did a whole lot of uh, digging into and what was happening culturally and socially in the uh, German nation. And what, what that determined was a very different story was that the German population, by and large, actively participated in it, not out of fear, because they really thought this was the best thing to do. And they thought that because of some many years of deprivation as a society and a group who created a narrative around one cultural group within society, the Jewish people, as being to blame for the horrible things happening to them. And so they were demonised um, and, and being demonised, uh, the population got behind that, really bought into it and were active participants in it. That is to say they weren't forced. The point this article makes is that you put any one of us, you put any one of us in the right context with the right story and the right finger pointing and we too will do what they did. Now, I don't know how many people I've met who say, not me. And I want to say back, you really don't know yourself. You think you are one thing, but you actually are very different to what you're allowing yourself to see of yourself. You don't really know who you are. Because we're told that we're beautiful butterflies waiting to emerge, to believe in ourselves. Notice with the Apostle Paul, you see, He sends a brother who is praised by all the churches and, verse 22, another brother who has proved himself 
because he's aware that given a chance, the Corinthian Christians would find a reason to accuse Paul of mishandling the money if he doesn't do it properly. And so he takes great heed. Because I'd suggest to you he knows what's in the heart of a man. He knows that anyone, given the right context, circumstance and situation, will give themselves over to temptation and sin. This is exactly what Jesus taught. Mark chapter 7, out of the heart comes evil. Uh, John chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. He knew that we are prone to this. And this is deeply important for us to grasp, this truth about human nature. Brothers and sisters, you are capable of many beautiful things. You are. You're capable of kindness, gentleness, love for others. It's possible for a human to lay down their life, sacrifice themselves for another person. The New Testament says this is possible. You are capable of many beautiful things. But put any of us in, in, a, in the right context, under the right pressure, in the context of deprivation, and you will do what others have done in history. There was a saying uh, many years ago um, uh, of two Christians walking past a prison. And as they walked past the prison, um, one was bemoaning how horrible these prisoners were, how they'd been such sinful, wretched people. And the other Christian, a mature Christian man said, there but for the grace of God go I. If it weren't for the grace of God in my life, I'd be there. Do you see the humility? Do you see the recognition of what he's really like? Powerfully important. You know, we are in the context of what you could call a romantic, modern romanticism, which is bred in humankind in our generation a personal blindness, where we think we're one thing, but we are actually another. And the consequences of not getting this right are incredibly important. Let me take you through some of those in a moment. Um, we are living in a conflicted time. Of, we, we have a sense that there's a problem with humankind, but we don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend we're better. And so we're living in conflict. Many years ago too, I, uh, um, Kathy and I used to live in a unit across the road from Bronte Beach. I um, mean, if you could pick a beach to live across the road from, I wouldn't have picked that one. But anyway, we, we didn't have a choice. We're living across the road from this beach. And um, we, um, I was working for a church in Sydney at that time and my boss, uh, a man who'd been in Christian ministry for, for a long, long time, he was very, very old, he was in his 40s, I think, it, um, it, but, but he was a very old, wise kind of guy and um, he was driving me home after a late night meeting um, during a particular period of history, I, th- I can't remember the date, I think it was 1986 or thereabouts, 87, and it was a moment when the solar system all the planets in the solar system aligned. It's actually an astronomical reality that happened. You could find the date when this occurred. Now, that's a significant thing, just as astronomical thing. But what had happened previously to it was that many people had believed that when the planets aligned, a new age of human history would be ushered in called the Age of Aquarius. Have you heard of the Age of Aquarius? This is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius. No, you don't even know your old music, do you? But um, the Age of Aquarius, the notion was that with the coming of the dawn of the Age of Aquarius, it'll be a period of um, goodwill and love, 
uh, selfishness would disappear, we'd become people who cared for one another, this new utopian society would emerge in the age of Aquarius, when the planets all aligned, you see, to bring a power into us. Well, at Bronte, there's a massive beach and park, and this was the night when it was happening. I came home after the, after the planets had aligned, so the age of Aquarius had begun. This, the park was packed with thousands of people, inner city people, packed with inner city people, all their cars parked everywhere and so on. And, and as this man dropped me off, uh, I was getting out of the car and he said, actually, just check to see if they've locked their cars. I thought, oh, why would you do that? He said, well, think about it. The age of Aquarius, where the world is now transformed into a time of goodwill towards one another, and they all believe that, but they got out of their cars and locked them because they don't actually believe it. They don't trust anyone else with their car. Do you see the conflict? We want to believe this romantically lovely ideal, but we still lock our cars, we still lock our houses, we still make sure we don't tell people about things because we can't trust them. You see, there's this confusion that's going on for us. I see it with young parents who um, have their first child, Seif, and... um, and they, they love on this child, they pour all their emotional energy into this child and they're thinking to themselves, Do you know, um, the reason kids are ratbags is because they're not loved on by their parents properly. But we're going to do it differently. We're going to love on our kids so well and so wonderfully that this child's going to grow up and love us back. And what happens when they hit two is that they spit at parents, they stomp on them, they get angry, they resent their parents and the parents, they just go this meltdown of what have I done wrong? I've done everything this for the child and they end up totally confused until an older parent comes along and says, you are raising a sinner, not a saint. In fact, young couples, here's a proverb you need to write down, Proverbs chapter 22 verse 15, Proverbs 22 verse 15, folly Foolishness is in the heart of a child, but discipline will drive it far away. The Proverbs have got it right. When a child is born, it's born with foolishness in its heart. And the aim of parenting is not to nurture the beautiful thing that's within, but discipline the child so that it's able to control its selfish, sinful urges and emerge as a mature adult. That's parenting. That's parenting. But in the midst of that, encouraging and being positive and believing the best of the child but expecting the worst is part of what... See, friends, do not leave a child alone in their room with a computer and the internet, imagining it'll all be okay. Because folly is in the heart of a child. Now, all of this still applies to Christians. Being a Christian changes things. We have a new spirit, we're new creatures, but we still carry around with us this body of death, Romans chapter 8. There are still members of our body that have so habituated to sin, so habitually used to sinning, that they undo every good desire, so that the genuinely born-again believer is in conflict between the spirit and the flesh. The sinful nature and the Spirit of God, though we're transformed and changed and have the Spirit of God, there's now a conflict. The sin and spirit, moral perfectionism does not occur in this life. Now, this passage assumes all of this about the Corinthians. He wants to make sure that God is pleased. He assumes this about Titus and the brothers. 
So he wants three of them to go together. And he assumes that the Corinthians, given an opportunity, will critique what Paul does. And so he wants to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. And he does these precautions. Now, let me apply this to us. I mean, much of it already you might sense some of where this is going, but I've got four quick applications. Let me take these through. First one's a smallish one, but uh, important, and uh, get bigger as we go along. First one is this. Because of this teaching, we as a church take great care with money. There's a box at each door, you hear about it most weeks, where you can put cash in. When that money's removed from that box, we insist that it's always done by two people and that two people carry it up to the room to count it and remain together while it's counted until it's locked in a bag that the bank is only able to open. Now, we do, why do you think we have two people counting the money? Because we don't trust any one of you <laughs> to do it on your own. And we have a policy that staff members are not allowed to count at all because we trust them even less. Now, you need to know some of this. Uh, we have de- detailed records of every transaction. Our accounts get audited. Now, auditing just means that we get an external body to go over our accounts to make sure that everything's been done right and properly because we don't trust ourselves and we want to make sure we do what's right before God and in the eyes of men. When we set up church, what we did was we created a separation of powers There are parts, so I was a paid staff member at the beginning and we've now got a number more. There's pastoral staff who get paid by the church and then there's volunteers in church, members of the church. We set up a body called the Church Council, which is made up entirely of volunteer, unpaid people elected by you and me. I'm the only paid staff member on that group, but there's um, unpaid members of church And that group manages our finances and makes decisions about finances. No staff member does it. Because the problem with staff members doing it is that they've got a vested interest in the finances because they get paid by it. We don't want them making decisions about money to make sure it's not done for their benefit, but it's done for the benefit of the church. No no paid member of staff is allowed to vote on issues of staff pay. So though I'm a member of that group, I absent myself when we talk about when we get to the point of voting about staff pay, because it's not appropriate for me to vote on it. I'm going to benefit from it, or or not, depending on how the group decides. Um, now this is to ensure, to ensure that decisions related to money are not by the peop- made by people who benefit from it. Um, now let me rattle out a few more things. Um, in the same vein, again, just trying to be transparent as this passage encourages us to do. Um, staff pays. Um, uh, when you give to church, uh, if we get more people giving to church more money, my pay, our pay does not go up. It's not tied to how much we can get you to give. It's a fixed pay rate that stays fixed. It might go down, but it never goes up. It might go down if we can't get enough money to pay the bills. The, the thing we have to do is cut staff pays to be able to... We just don't have any money, so we can't pay... So their pay might go down, but it won't go up if there's more pay given. Um, we work out staff pays on the basis of how uh, the Sydney Anglican churches pay their staff. We've taken 90% of what they get paid and we apply it to the staff here. No one is getting rich being paid as a staff member of church. 
And we've done that so that there's an external body working out staff pay, so again, it's even more arm's length and removed. Now, how much does staff here get paid? Well, around school teacherish pay rates, that's kind of the proxy, um, you know, head teacher, these kinds of different figures, that's something of what staff here get paid. It's worth saying too that in our church world, unlike some other church contexts, there's no speaking tour that we use secretly to increase our pay. If you've been following any of the news, there's been a massive sort of crash of the biggest church in Australia, in Sydney, and one of the things that happened, what's emerged is that um, the churches were paying various staff a certain amount, but then the churches in this community of churches were inviting their ministers to, to swap pulpits and paying them for a speaking event, ten grand, five thousand dollars to speak at a church, and they were doing this to each other so that their pay, though it was a certain level, was topped up by these speaking fees. We just don't have that culture. Um, a friend of mine spoke in New Zealand and got a tea towel for his efforts. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's we just don't have that world, you see. One of the policies we have in place too is that staff members who do get paid for speaking somewhere else give that money to church instead of keeping it personally because we want you to know that we live on the basis of what you pay us, not some secret amounts that come in outside of that. Um, we, uh, we can't re- we've chosen not to receive cash gifts from congregation members. There's, uh, there was many occasions when in the early years uh, a particular man would hear that our family was about to go on holidays and, um, and every time, the week before he'd go, he'd shake my hands and say, have a great holiday. And when he took his hand away, there'd be $50 in my hand. Um, and uh, he'd sort of palmed it and stuck it in there. And I'd go, whoa, 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 you can't give me this money. Oh, it's for the kids. Just have some ice creams and so on. And I'd say, no, no, you can't give it. The church pays me. And I'd go. So we'd have this fight in the foyer about this $50, and I'd try and put it in his pocket, and he'd try and bang it down my shirt. And so we'd, um, it took him a while to get the point. But I said to him, we can't do it, because if I take it, what about the other staff? How come they don't get it? If you want to give us money, put it in the plate, in the bag, in the box. Now, I'm telling all of this so that you... Now, what's beautiful is that that man was generous. He wanted to bless the people around him. And and so I applauded him for that. But you see, as a church, we can't... If we're going to do what's right in the eyes of God and men, we can't allow that to happen, you see, because it hurts uh, who we are and so on. Why do I tell you all this? Because it's important that we're transparent. Because we believe in the ongoing power of sinful nature, even in Christians. Um, You need to know what we do so that you can be part of helping us be held to account and make sure we're guarded in this area. There's the first one. It's very practical. But let me give you the second one. We start to get a bit bigger. Second application of this is learning to live wisely. The problem of sin and the temptations to sin and the dangers of money are not out there with the powerful people. They're in every one of you. Now, I know we talked about this last week. Most of you don't have much money and so you think it's not my problem, but it will be. It will be. And it'll be a problem in sin, it will be a problem in... Take care to know this about yourself. That to live an uncontrolled, ill-disciplined life, what will emerge is not the butterfly, but the grub. If you don't learn to control your spirit and control and discipline your 
impulses, you will actually grow up to be someone who is consumed by sin, captivated by sin, because that's who you are. Capable of beautiful things, but prone to sin, captivated by sin. You need to learn to discipline yourself and fight against your natural impulses. Now, it's not just money. Um, Can I speak to men? That certainly applies to women in some degree, but men more particularly. Um, Don't kid yourselves that you won't uh, sin sexually if given the chance. So be careful of the context you put yourself in with a girlfriend or on a trip. Be alert to the fact that you are you are fundamentally prone to pursuing your sexual needs and you will use context and situations to justify it. Take great care. And, and women, young women, can I speak to you as, I guess, a proxy dad? This is the dad talk for you, if you don't mind me doing this. Um, if you are dating a young man and you've been dating that young man more than three months, what will begin to happen is he'll want to go further physically. And one of the dangers for you is you'll interpret that as him loving you and wanting greater intimacy because he'll communicate that that's what it's about. And you will feel the pressure to actually give to him more than you are comfortable with because of the desire to have a greater intimacy. Don't be conned. Young men are doing that because of their lusts and needs, not because of their heart for you. Don't give him what is so precious until he's prepared to stand up publicly and say, I will commit to you for better or worse, in richer and poorer, sickness and health, to death to us part. Until, he's, until he stands up and does that, do not give him what is most precious. He'll want it and he'll put you in context and situations to get it. Even the most wonderful Christian men amongst us will be tempted in the same way. Young women, take heed to this about ourselves. When you raise kids one day, just remember you're raising sinners who have great potential for beautiful and wonderful things, but also have folly in their heart. Believe in them and discipline them. First was, here's what we do here as a church. Second, live wisely. Third, How you deal with hurt if you've been through a church that's failed. Brothers and sisters, if you understand the human heart, you'll realise that Christian leaders will let you down because they're sinners like the rest of us. Do not be shattered when it happens. Be disappointed, be horrified, call them to repentance. Pray it never happens, but when it does, don't be shattered. All they've done is proven that we need a saviour. The Christian faith, the Christian message is a message that we are so fallen in sin, sin is so much entwined in our whole being, that there's no hope before God except that a saviour comes and dies in our place to pay the debt that we owe so that by his merits we're saved, not by ours. And the fact that we sin just proves how right that was. That we aren't worthy, there is no merit in us, we need a saviour. Don't be shattered. The heart of the gospel reminds us that sin is there with all of us. Which means we don't just need the cross to be saved, 
We need the merits of the death of Jesus to be constantly applied to us day after day because we remain sinners, though indwelt by the Holy Spirit. First one, just some transparency about our church. Second one, um, live wisely. Third one, um, don't be rocked. Last, what's the answer to all of this? The world only has one answer. Be nice to each other. Be nicer to each other. You should be nice to each other. Just try and speak positively and love each other and it'll all be... That's the answer the Bible gives. Just keep saying the world gives. Be nice, be nice. It's not working. It can look like it does for a while, but it's not working. The Christian message is the only message on the planet that has an answer, which is that you you cannot get rid of sin, you need a saviour to pay and you need to be completely remade in a new age where God will rebuild us entirely and get rid of sin. That's the biblical answer. And Jesus' death and resurrection proves it's true. Do you know, let me give you a cooking illustration. It's a great risk. Um, When you cook a cake, or as I'm told now, bake a cake, when you bake a cake, actually I'm talking to a bunch of people who've got no clue why they have it, but when you bake a (laughs) cake, look at you, when I bake a cake, when you bake a cake, um, you usually use a cup of sugar, depending on the size of the cake. If you happen to reach in the dark and grab a cup of salt and stick it into the cake, it's all over. You can't cut it out. You can't rifle through the cake and get rid of the bits of salt. It's so embedded and entwined in the whole cake, you've got to chuck the whole thing out. That's sin. Sin is so entwined in every fibre of our being. No, no repeated calls to just be nice is going to change it. We need a saviour who forgives us and a saviour who one day will remake us. And the key to that is the gospel. Preaching the gospel is the answer to the sin of the world that gives forgiveness and to be remade into a new world. So what do we do? We believe the gospel, we we preach the gospel to ourselves and we preach the gospel to the world. It's its only hope. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the great news of Jesus, our Saviour, who has made it possible for sinners such as us to be forgiven, who has given us his spirit to free us from the power of sin and promises one day to return to remake us, to take us to be with himself. We thank you for this message. Pray that you are deeply embedded in our hearts. Give us great assurance and confidence in it and help us please... Preach this message to the world and let that produce much fruit, we ask. In Jesus' great name, amen.